you have your Bibles tonight and you would, find the book of 1 Kings. Uh, we started a brand new series um, in 1 Kings back in October. And uh, different things have come up with uh, fellowship nights and guest speakers. And so you might have forgotten that you might have forgotten that we even started this. Uh, but it was titled "Leading in a Broken World." And we are watching in our country a failure of leadership. We are watching in our state a failure of leadership. We're watching in homes and businesses a failure of leadership. And even in churches, we are seeing a great struggle. Tonight, I am here to tell you that for nine out of every ten churches that you pass on the road, nine of them are struggling mightily, struggling to find pastors, struggling to have deacons, struggling to stay open in many cases. And when we come to 1 Kings, we're looking at the transition of power from King David to King Solomon. And many of us would say things like this, well, I could be a better leader if I had better followers. Right? I could be a better husband if my wife listened better. I would be a better father if I didn't get so much resistance from my children. I would be a better pastor if you listened better. Right? I could be a better mayor, which I'm not a mayor. Please don't think that. I would be a better mayor if I had better citizens. But yet when we look in the Word of God, leadership, servant leadership, is not dependent upon the people that we serve or lead. Just like this morning, our walk with the Lord is our responsibility. But being a leader, even in difficult times and difficult situations, is a personal responsibility to have wisdom, to have wisdom that God can give us so that even though things at my home might not be perfect, I can be who God wants me to be. Even though things at work might not be as ideal as I would like for them to be, I can lead in a way that honors God. And so we started this chapter and we looked in verses 1 through 4 about how a weary leader... King David had grown weary, and so at his age, he began to take his hands off the wheel. The kingdom begins to kind of run itself. And we looked in verses 5 and 6 how one of his sons, who was not promised to be king, decided to raise himself up and declare himself king. And so we looked at how false leadership operates in the vacuum of real leadership. Then we looked at how unwise counsel in verses 7 through 10 can have a leader be led astray. In verses 11 through 14, we looked about how even the most difficult relationships, if we will let them, can turn into something very godly. We looked in verses 15 through 25 about a godly woman who was willing to be led. And then in verses 22 through 27, we looked at a godly man willing to take a stand. And so that's where we start tonight. King David has realized through his wife, through his advisors, that he needs to make a decision. Who is going to be king? We have two sons, but yet Solomon is not in the picture yet in the sense that he's not come to his father. He's not petitioned his case. He's not stood before the people and said, Woe is me, I've been wronged, I've been cheated, I've been taken advantage of. But yet his loving mother has been involved. And so I want to read you this verse about wisdom from the book of Proverbs because ultimately that's our goal. Whether as a father, as a mother, 
as a church member, as a deacon, as a pastor, as a Sunday school teacher, wherever God has you is to have wisdom, real wisdom. In Proverbs, the 28th chapter, verse 26, it says this, He who trusts in his own heart is a fool. But whoever walks wisely or with wisdom, your Bible might say, will be delivered. That idea for deliverance can be many different things. It can be rescued from a problem. It can be saved from judgment. It could mean to accomplish what is necessary. So whatever you need in your life, wherever you're going through, whether it's a time of blessing, a time of challenge, a time of loss, a time of gain, what we need is wisdom because our heart will fool us. Our heart will lead us astray. And so tonight as we look at this, I hope that you will apply these things in your life, in your marriage, so that wisdom is something you are known by. Something that reflects in your decision making. Something as a church we can look back and say that God has allowed us to be full of wisdom. And so if you would pray with me tonight and we'll begin through this chapter. Father, tonight I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for its truth when even we don't look for it. And Lord, I pray tonight that you would help us to know your voice, to know your word. And Lord, to live in its blessings. Lord, we believe and trust you in the sufficiency of your word in all things. And Lord, I just ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And so tonight, if you're taking notes, and I hope that you will, whose authority are we listening to? You said, man, didn't we just have a sermon this morning on power and authority? Yes, we did. And once again, why does God give these, these titles? Apparently, we don't listen very well. And maybe it's not you, maybe it's me that is not listening. But in starting in verse 28, the Bible says these words. Then King David answered and said, The king is speaking here. The king is giving his decree. The king is giving his marching orders. And this morning, if you remember, we looked at another king giving his marching orders. Jesus says, I'm sending you out. I'm sending you out with authority. I'm sending you out with power. This is what I want from you. And here we see an earthly king, but yet God's king doing the same thing. Then King David answered and said, Call Bathsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king took an oath and said, As the Lord lives who has redeemed my life from every distress, just as I swore to you by the Lord God of Israel, saying, Assuredly, Solomon your son shall be king after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place, so I certainly will do this day. Then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the earth and paid homage to the king, and said, Let my lord King David live forever. And King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaniah the son of Jehoiada. So they came before the king, and the king also said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord, and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule, and take him down to Gahan. There let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him king over Israel, and blow the horn. And say, Long live King Solomon. 
Then you shall come up after him, and he shall come and sit on my throne, and he shall be king in my place. For I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and Judah. Benaiah the son of Jehoiada answered the king and said, Amen. May the Lord God of my Lord and king say so too. As the Lord had been with my Lord the king, even so may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my Lord King David. In the first chapter, we have had two people claim to be king. King David's other son, on his own authority, said, I'll be king. I'll round up all the people. He rounded up his own brothers. If you look in verses 7 and 8, he, he led the brought the men of the army, Joab, all of these people. He brought as many as he could get. And if you remember, the Bible says there was only a few that didn't come. Nathan, Zodak, and this Joadiah, right? These three compared to every other one of these influential leaders, important people. And he said, I'll be king. But yet, guess what? There was only one person's opinion that mattered. There was only one source of real authority and power, and that was David's. And in our life, as a father, as a mother, as a church, we need to be reminded that there is only one source of authority. We do not bow to a pope. We do not bow to a council. We put ourselves under the authority of the Word of God, who we believe is the living Word of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what God's Word says, not a preacher, not a teacher, not a class, not a curriculum, what God's Word says is the ultimate authority on everything that we believe. Wow. I believe that. I don't know about you, all right? That's it. And tonight what has happened, and, and one of the biggest regrets I have as a pastor, I am finishing my 12th year here, and you're saying, boy, it feels a lot longer than that. I am sorry if that's the way you feel. Is I wish all of the times I knew what God's Word said and really believed it to my core, but then someone would say, well, why don't we try this? Or I heard this would be a good idea. Or let's look into this. Or you can't grow a church by doing this. Or don't you know, Jake, that's so old-fashioned. And in those times, I thought, yeah, sure. Sure, that, that sounds all right. I can agree with that or listen to that or think about that. And if I would have just in my mind thought, no. No, I'm good where we're at. I'm good with what we're doing. I believe what the Bible says. That's never been anything big. I never have changed my opinion on salvation or, or on marriage or these things that are bedrocks, but just the little things. Those little things that have looked back and thought, if I just would have listened to the authority, if I just had believed what God had said, if I just would have built everything on what He said, how many heartbreaks could have been avoided? How many times if I just would have believed what God said about me personally? If I would have just trusted that God is the one that fights my battle and Jake doesn't have to fight them. Now, I know you've never had this problem, but I have got myself in more trouble by trying to get myself out of trouble. Somebody will say something, well, that's not what happened. God said, shut up, Jake. Let me fight for you. And so many times I look back and think, if I just would have believed what God said about me, 
How many doubts, fears, insecurities that I've struggled with because I didn't listen to the authority on everything. That's the Lord. And tonight I want to encourage you because you and I are living in a world when everyone claims to be the authority on everything. When in the world did we think a 17-year-old girl who hasn't even finished college, went to college, is the world expert on climate change, but who flew in a private jet, has a private, private yacht, burns more carbon in one trip than you will ever burn, is the expert on anything. But yet we celebrate that. In what world do we think that you can promote someone to work in the Department of Health and Safety and is not even sure which gender they are, but yet they're telling you what should be done to your children? You see, we're living in a world of educated idiots. And what you and I need to know is what does God say? What does God say about finances? What does God say about money? What does God say about marriage? What does God say about forgiveness? What does God say about church? That's the one that gets me all the time. Now, I know I rail on this all the time, and that's all right. You will not believe how many times I go somewhere, and people are like, I just can't believe that you are so cruel that you make your people, first of all, preachers make their people do nothing, come back on Sunday night. And then they even come back on Wednesday night. Do you not realize they have a life? They have things that they could be doing. They need time with their family. Do you not understand how busy people are? I'm like, hey, I get it. I get it. But I read somewhere in a worldwide bestseller to not forsake the assembling of yourselves together and to meet more, oh, come on, often as you see the day approaching. But I tell you, I can go to a conference full of pastors in this entire state, and there's like three of us that are doing tonight what we're doing here. And, it, and the flesh begins to say, well, hey, you know, why do I prepare seven sermons a week? These guys prepare one. Man, they got it made. But then that verse comes back to my mind. Then it reminds me in the book of Romans that how can they believe unless they hear and how can they hear unless a preacher is sent and blessed are those feet of those who preach the gospel and so everything in me in the flesh says oh man and here we are but that's for everything that's for how we live that's for how we think that's for how we go whose authority tonight are you basing your life on Listen to what John says about us as New Testament Christians. Jesus says these words, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you in, don't miss this, all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. What does that say? That you can know all truth. 
Now, does that mean you can understand everything about God? Absolutely not. His ways are higher than ours. His thoughts are above ours. But if there is truth that God wants you to know, you can what? Know it. You can know how to be the person that God wants you to be. How to be the husband God wants you to be. How to run a business the way God wants you to run it. How to be a witness at work by the way that God wants you to do because His authority has been given to us to know and to understand. Second thing tonight as we pick up the pace just a little bit is not only whose authority are we listening to, whose instructions are we being led by. You see, you have to recognize the authority that you're getting your information, and then you have to listen to those instructions. It used to mean something when you were sent by the President of the United States, an ambassador for the United States. You spoke for the authority of the United States government. But look what it says here in verses 38 through 48. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaniah the son of Jehodiah, the Cheritites and the Pelotites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and took him to Gihon. That is a sign of authority. That is his mule. That's the king's mule. Only the king can ride on the mule. Then Zadok, in verse 39, the priest took a horn of oil from the tabernacle and anointed Solomon. And they blew the horn and all the people said, Long live King Solomon. This is a sign of a special anointing for God. From God for Solomon. Just like David had received a special anointing. Just like King Saul had received a special anointing from Samuel. This is their way of saying King David approves. God approves. And look in verse 40. And all the people went up after him. And they play, people played the flutes and rejoiced with great joy. So that the earth seemed to split with their sound. Now Adonijah, now that's the son that is trying to steal the throne, who's having the big party, the big gathering, the big celebration, hears that there's another game in town. Now Adonijah and all the guests who were with him heard it as they finished eating. And when Joab heard the sound of the horn, he said, Why is the city in such a noisy uproar? While he was still speaking, there came Jonathan, the son of Abathar, the priest. And Adonijah said to him, Come in, for you are a prominent man, and bring good news. He says, Everyone else must have heard what we've been doing, and they're on our case. They're on our side. They want me to be king. Then Jonathan answered and said to Adonijah, No, our Lord, King David. Don't miss that. Do you hear the authority in that? He's not saying as Lord of Lord, King of Kings. He's saying the guy that is God's man, the guy who is the king, who's the only one who has a say in the matter of the kingdom, has made someone else king. All your authority, all your scheming, all your conniving, all your planning has been undone by the word of one person. King David has made Solomon king. The king has sent with him Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaniah the son of Jehodiah, the Cherizites, the Pelizzites, and they have made him ride on the king's mule. So Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet had anointed him at Gihon, and they had gone up there rejoicing, so the city was in an uproar. This is the noise that you have heard. Also Solomon sits on the throne of the kingdom. 
So they've taken him to the place of power, the place that symbolizes who's in charge, and there he sits. And moreover, he's building this case. The king's servants have gone to bless our Lord King David, saying, May God make the name of Solomon better than your name, and may he make his throne greater than your throne. Then the king bowed himself on the bed, Also the king thus said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who has given one to sit on my throne this day, while my eyes see it. Now King David is being reported as saying, What greater could happen in my life than for me to see my replacement on the throne, secured and established. Now this might not be a big deal in our day and age of elections and transfer of power, But when you're talking about a kingship that goes from one generation to the next, from one to the next, you have studied history enough to know that kings changed wife quite often until they found a male heir, one that could live and could thrive and one could build an empire. And what King David is saying for everyone to hear is, this is the greatest blessing God could give me, that watching Solomon sit on the throne. Now, if you're Adonijah... And you've heard that God put Solomon on the throne. David put Solomon on the throne. All the people want Solomon on the throne. And even the greatest blessing in David's life, in all the ways that God has blessed him, is to see Solomon sitting on the throne and you stand in the way of that. Friends, that's a dangerous place to be. And tonight I ask you that in your walk with the Lord. Are you willing to recognize God's authority in your life? and follow those instructions like Zadok and Nathan and Benaniah? Or are you trying to be in charge of your own destiny, your own marriage, your own finances, your own place of employment? Who rules the kingdom of your heart? Who sits on the throne of your soul? Is it Jesus Christ who rules and reigns not only all of the heavens, but my life, my emotions? Or is there a battle that I recognize, Lord, you are in charge, but I still want to make the decisions. Lord, I know you're the one that died for me, but I've got some opinions I would like to debate with you. Friends, just like in this story, when it comes to our walk with the Lord, if you are a child of God, there is no debating what God wants for our life. God has a purpose and a plan. God is in charge. God can accomplish things. But we have to be willing to listen to the instructions that we are given. Listen to what Romans, the 8th chapter says, going in verses 14 and 17. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, there is the Spirit, there is the one who reveals truth, there is the one that comes to indwell us. These are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may be glorified with Him. It says that if you belong to God, the Spirit that lives in you will let you know. And you will know that because you are being willing to be led by God. Now, this is not popular and that's okay. But we have got to quit teaching people that they should be doubting their salvation. 
If you are a child of God, you should know it. And you should know it not only because the Spirit is revealing it to you, but when you begin to live your life and make decisions and plan out what God would have for you, you are not led by the flesh, you are led by the Spirit. And we need to get back to telling people that truly born again, saved people who are indwelled by the Spirit of God, who are led by the Spirit of God, who produce the fruit of the Spirit. It's all there. But yet we can experience that in our lives if we are willing. The last two points, and I'll be very quick. The third thing, I I don't usually have four, but I couldn't condense it anymore. We see here who are surrounding ourselves with. We've looked that we have to recognize authority. We have to recognize the instructions. But look at who we surround ourselves with as children of God. Verse 49 might be my favorite verse in this whole book. So all the guests who were with Adonijah were afraid and arose, and each one went his way. Now, I've ran off some good company in my time, but I've never had a half town worth of a party all get up and just leave. That'd be like sitting back in the fellowship hall with 300 people, fellowshipping, just celebrating, being excited, and then something happened and everyone get up and leave except for you. You are toxic, right? It's kind of like one of those, uh, I shouldn't say this, but I'll say it anyway. It's kind of like one of those funny movies where someone passes gas and everyone leaves the room, right? Woo, got to get out of here. He was toxic. They realized that they wanted no part of Adonijah. They just wanted the benefits of being his friend. His own brothers abandoned him. Remember? His family was there. His friends were there. The leaders were there. But when they realized he would no longer be king, they all scattered. Friends, tonight as a believer, surround yourself with people who do not care about your wealth, who do not care about what they can gain from you. Do not worry about people who are looking to improve their cause because of a friendship with you. The book of Proverbs tells us who we should surround ourselves with. Starting in verse 19 of the 19th chapter. A man of great wrath will suffer punishment. For if you rescue him, you will have to do it again. Be careful surrounding yourself with angry people. Because anger is a sin that unless God takes it away from you, it just keeps rearing its head. It just keeps getting him in trouble. And you will have to be rescued or do the rescuing. Look at verse 20. Listen to counsel and receive instruction that you may be wise in your later days. Wisdom is something that is learned over a lifetime. But friends, I want to learn it quicker rather than later. I want to know how to be the husband God wants me to be today, not when I'm 65. I want to learn to manage God's money God's way now, not when I'm 70. Listen to counsel and receive instruction. Surround yourself with godly people who will tell you the truth even when it is not pleasing, even when it's not what you would like, and even if it puts their friendship with you at risk. In verse 21 it says, There are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, this Lord's counsel that will stand. Find someone in your life that will share Scripture with you. Not their opinion of things, but what does the Bible say? One of my favorite things is when Brother John is preaching and he's talking about his road rage. I love it when he tells those stories because Sherry always tells him what? 
preach on, preacher, right? When he's angry and he's lost his temper at someone cutting him off in traffic. Because that's the kind of people we need in our life. Not necessarily in that context, but yet Scripture. Right? When we're angry, when we've lost our temper, when the Bible says that a gentle word turns away wrath. When we struggle with forgiveness, someone that will come to us and say, the Bible says if you do not forgive, you will not be forgiven. When we're struggling with doubt and discouragement, someone that can come along and share with us, the Bible says that the Lord never leaves us nor forsakes us. I know what you're saying. People don't talk that way. right? We don't quote scripture even at church. You know what I wish would happen? I wish we would. I wish we would. Now, I don't want you walking up to me and saying, get behind me, Satan, all right? That's, you know, I can see your face. That's what's coming to your mind right off the bat. But if the Bible promises never to return void, maybe we ought to use it more. Maybe we ought to share it more. Maybe we ought to memorize it more. Maybe we ought to talk about it more. Because I don't know if you know this or not, but opinions have no spiritual weight. But the Word of God does. What does God's word say? The third and final thing, and I'll be done. We've looked at how we have to recognize authority, how we have to take instruction, how we have to be very careful who we surround ourselves. But then this is where the rubber hits the road. Solomon comes into the picture. He has been given everything now. He sits on the throne of ultimate power. And what's he going to do with his sneaking, conniving brother? This is what I want you to write down if you're taking notes. Are we willing to seek peace and mercy when possible? Look what it says in verse 50. Now Adonijah was afraid of Solomon, rightfully so. So he arose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar. And it was told Solomon, saying, Indeed, Adonijah is afraid of King Solomon. For look, he has taken hold of the horns of the altar. And what that means is it's a sign that you run and you put yourself under the mercy of God. Right? I'm, I'm calling on God to defend me, to protect me. Let God be the justifier of my cause. Sometimes people still got killed, but that was kind of like a city of refuge in that mindset. It says, let King Solomon swear to me today that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. Now, look at here. He does not repent in this time. He doesn't say, go tell King Solomon that I'm sorry. He doesn't go and tell King Solomon that I made a mistake. He says, make King Solomon promise that he will not kill me. Look what it goes on to say from Solomon in verse 52. Then Solomon said, if, if, if. He proves himself a worthy man. Not one hair of him shall fall to the earth. But if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. So King Solomon sent them to bring him down from the altar. And he came and fell down before King Solomon. And Solomon said to him, Go to your house. Solomon had every right right here to have him executed. By law, by what is right in the Old Testament... He could have had him put to death with no problem. But he chose to show mercy. Why do you think he chose to show mercy? One, I believe it was something that God allowed him to do. Two, I believe he'd already seen his dad lose enough children that he didn't want to see him lose another one. 
There are hundreds and hundreds of examples. But what I want you to see tonight, He showed mercy and peace. And tonight as a church, the greatest thing that we can do is show mercy to one another. To be willing, even when we're wrong, even when we've been offended, even when we're right and no one else knows it, to let God fight for us. In Luke the 17th chapter, one of the most interesting verses on forgiveness is given. Because naturally we know the Bible says, if you don't forgive, then you will not be forgiven. Matthew chapter 18. But listen to how Luke describes it in chapter 17 in the words of Jesus. Then he said to his disciples, it is impossible that no offenses should come. Jesus says, look up here. You're not going to live life without being offended. There is no way that you can put yourself in such a bubble that you won't get hurt, that you won't be betrayed, that you won't come under persecution, no matter how much you try. But woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. And little ones is not necessarily talking about children in this text. It's talking about new believers and believers in general. It is a serious deal to wrong another Christian. But look what in verse 3 it goes on to say. Take heed to yourselves. He says, look inward first. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if, now don't miss that, and if he repents, forgive him. Well, Jesus said in Matthew 18 that you had to forgive. It doesn't matter if they repent or not. You forgive or you will not be forgiven. Because if you've read Matthew chapter 18, it's all about the man who is forgiven a great sum, right? And then he goes out and he finds the man that doesn't owe him very much and he says, you're going to prison. You're going to suffer in the debtor's prison until you pay back everything you own. And the king's like, what? (laughs) I forgave you so much and you won't be forgiven. Now you are going to face judgment. But yet here it says, if he repents. How do we justify these two? This is the best way I can explain it. Forgiveness is something that we always do in our hearts. But unless... I am willing to go to someone who has wronged me. Our fellowship will never be the same. Now don't miss this. What does that mean? That means if I offend you, and it has probably happened. It's 12 years together for some of us. Some of us longer than that. You have to forgive me. But if you're not willing to forgive me and give me the opportunity to repent our relationship will never be the same. In your mind, you will always have that wrong in your head and the fact that you were the spiritual mature person that let it go. And I don't know if you know this or not, but anytime you elevate yourself spiritually over someone else, that's pride. But what Jesus says is, if I have wronged Gary or Gary has wronged me, if I'm not willing to go to him and say, Gary, that really bothered me, I want to talk about it. I want us to pray through it. I want us to work on it. Then I have no right to expect that our relationship will ever be good. Oh, it might be fake on Sunday. Oh, Jerry, how are you today? Oh, I'm just praying for you. Yep. Now that crap goes on all the time. Let's just be honest, right? But I mean a real relationship. 
one that says, hey, I need something. I'm going to call him. I want him to pray for me. Or when I walk through the line at a funeral home and say, I love that man, and I'm so sorry for what is going on. I mean real love. Real relationships. Not the phony stuff that goes on most of the time. It can never be right if I have been wronged until I go to him and say, I just need to talk to you. That relationship will never be right. Why? Because he might not even know that he's wronged me. Gary and I aren't the sharpest tools in the shed when it comes to relationships. I mean, he's a genius at air conditioning, right? But him and I don't hear, and so we miss a lot. <laughs> not trying to be mean. <laughs> Just teasing. But I might not even know that I've offended you. I might not even know that our relationship's broken. And you say, I'll work through it on my end. Jesus says, no, you won't. You will never be able to really restore that relationship when someone has wronged you until you walk up and say, Rosemary, that hurt. And I want to talk about it. You say, Jake, that doesn't happen in church. That's why church is the way it is. That's why when there's one little offense, church is split. Churches fight. Or we don't talk about what's really wrong. We just act like it never happened. And that breaks fellowship. Some of you might be doing that in your marriage tonight. Well, you know what, I, he, he wronged me, he hurt me, but you know what, I'm just going to forgive and move on. You have to be very careful. Because when we say we forgive and move on and don't really deal with it, guess what we've really done? We've held on to it. We've not let God deal with it. Jesus said, take heed to yourself. If your brother sins against you, what? Rebuke him. That, that's not a bad word. That's just that's a, a go to one another. To, to, to confront one another. To engage one another. One time... I had a friend, and I'll be done. Him and his wife had two little children, and we were friends, and, and they had a funeral to go to, and so I was babysitting. I had never been around kids, all right? That was a terrible idea for them. But I've always got along with people, you know, and, and the little girl was probably about three, and one was seven, I don't know. Well, I didn't know that a three-year-old, if you didn't put the toilet seat down, when they got up on the toilet, it would fall in. I didn't know. So I went to the restroom, came back out, left the toilet seat up. It's what guys do. It's just part of life. Next thing I hear from the living room is this three-year-old girl going, Uncle Jake, you left the toilet seat up and I fell in. Traumatized this little girl. Even to this day, She's like 20 years old. And she'll be like, have you left the toilet seat bottle to your kids? I'm like, no. She has never let it go. It has been seared into her brain as a memory for the rest of her life. You say, Jake, what does that have to do with this? That's a funny story that doesn't get forgotten. But when it's real pain, when it's real betrayal, when it's real hurt, when it's real unforgiveness, friends, it doesn't go away. It doesn't go away unless we deal with it. And so what King Solomon did here was he showed mercy. But this relationship was never right. And what you're going to see in a couple chapters, and I won't, I won't give it away, but I guess I will. He rebels again in a sneaky, subtle way. And it cost him his life. And so tonight my greatest challenge for you is leading in a broken world. Sorry about that, Gary. I hope you're not mad at me. 
Shouldn't have made all those nice statements. <laughs> okay, we'll talk about it later. That's what it says. Is who are you willing to listen to? The instructions you're willing to take. Surrounding yourself with the right people. And really being willing to forgive and show peace and mercy in times of great trial. If you and I will do that, we will lead in such a way that honors God, that nurtures our family and our marriages, and becomes the people that God wants us to be. And then God can do amazing things if we'll let him. If you would pray with me. Father, tonight I thank you for your word. Lord, I just thank you for its truth. And Lord, I'm sorry for all my foolishness and nonsense from time to time. But Lord, tonight I pray that you would help us to get serious about our walk with you. What you can do in those times of difficulty, in the times of challenges. Lord, help us to really let you work in our hearts and lives. Because God, our community needs this church to be a light on a hill. Lord, help us to influence our families, our children, our grandchildren, all for you. Lord, tonight if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, I pray, Lord, that your spirit is revealing to them that they need a relationship with you. That there is no wisdom found anywhere outside of you and you alone. And Lord, I ask it all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.